Well, I want to begin uh, this morning with a question. What is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? You know, above all other things, what is it that you need the most? I imagine if I asked different people that question, I'd probably get an array of different answers. According to the eight-year-old girl in, the, in front of me in the line in the checkout at Kmart the other day, her greatest need was the chuppa-chup. <laughs> Mum, I need the chuppa-chup, she kept saying. That was her greatest need. For others, I'm sure the answer would be a bit different. Uh, recently, this very question was asked on the internet forum uh, site, answerbag.com. And it was interesting to see some of the answers that were offered there. Uh, one lady, she said that her greatest need was to have a baby. Uh, several others said that their greatest need was sleep. Uh, one person suggested that the love of her family and her friends, that was her greatest need. Another said money. Another said education and knowledge. One person said that their greatest need was a heartbeat, and I guess there's something in that. Another person said that their greatest need was getting a better job. What I found quite interesting was the fact that no one on this forum said that their greatest need was just the basics of life. You know, food and water and shelter and foxtail, the basics of life. <laughs> I wonder if you would answer in the same way as any of these people. What, would, what do you consider to be your greatest need? This morning I'd like to suggest that there is something else that trumps all of these other things. This morning I want to suggest that we have a need greater than all of them. I'm talking about our health. Because you see, unless you've got your health, I can hear lots of people coughing out there this morning. <laughs> unless you've got your health, you can't do or you can't enjoy any of these other things. You know, you can't you can't care for your baby. You can't have a baby if, if, if you're not well. You can't enjoy your sleep. You can't hang out with your family and friends if you're infectious. You know, if you're immobile, well, you can't go to work. You can't go to school. If you're in pain, you can't enjoy your foxtail. I want to suggest this morning that when it comes to what you need the most, your health, well, it's right up there, isn't it? But you know what? It's still not your greatest need. This morning I want us to look together at a story from the Bible. It's a true story, it's a true history, a story of events that took place 2,000 years ago in northern Israel, in a city called Capernaum. It's a story centering on a man named Jesus. Now Jesus has just started to gain a bit of a reputation for himself, a reputation as a superb preacher and as a bit of a miracle man. And it's this reputation that means that regardless of wherever Jesus goes, there's always a crowd there following him. In this particular account, we see Jesus in a house in Capernaum. There's a mass of people crowding all around him. They're inside the house, they're outside the house, they're everywhere. So Jesus takes this opportunity and he starts preaching to them. Uh, read with me uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Mark chapter 2 from verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. You get the idea? This is, this is some crowd that's there to see Jesus. 
But then we learn of some other men who come and join the crowd. Four of them, they're carrying a paralytic man, a crippled man. What they're doing is they're trying to get to Jesus. They've probably heard that Jesus has been able to heal people. And so now they're no doubt hoping that Jesus will heal their mate too. Only problem is, they can't get the crippled man to Jesus. There's just too many people. It's a bit like trying to to move through the crowd on the harbour foreshore on New Year's Eve. You know, these blokes trying to carry a crippled man through that kind of crowd, they've got Buckley's. But they're desperate. This might be their only chance to have their mate healed by Jesus. And so they come up with a cunning plan. They decide that rather than going through the crowd, what they'll do is they'll climb up onto the roof of the house and then they'll dig through the roof of the house and they'll lower the crippled man down to Jesus while he's laying on his mat. Read with me from verse 3. Verse 3. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralysed man was lying on. Now, can you imagine the look on the face of the owner of this house as these men dig their way through his, the roof? You kind of hope that he's got one of those blue tarps on hand, you know, for when the next storm comes. But what these men are doing here, you know, digging through the roof and everything, it is comical until you realise the desperation that is behind the actions of these men. They are so desperate to see their mate healed. You see, to be a paralysed person today, to be a cripple today, it's a terrible thing, terrible. But to be paralysed in Jesus' day, well, that was woeful. No social security to help you out. No wheelchairs to get around on. No nursing care, no hospitals, no occupational therapy. Just a life of lying around in your own filth. Bed sores that ulcerate. Often it meant a life of begging just to survive. This man's condition, it's wretched. The only thing he's got going for him are these good mates, mates who look at him, determine his greatest need is to walk again, to have his health, and mates who take him to the one who who they believe can can provide that for this man. They take him with absolute desperation to Jesus. So it's what what happens next that is kind of jarring. Because as Jesus sees these men lowering the paralysed man down to him, Jesus sees in them this strong belief that they they have that he is able to heal their friend. But rather than doing for them what they want, Jesus, he turns to the crippled man and he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Read with me verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read what Jesus says here, I do find it quite jarring. When I think about what this man needs, when I think about his wretched state, when I think about the whole reason these men have brought him here, the last thing I expect to hear from Jesus' lips is, son, your sins are forgiven. I expect him to say, all right, matey, up you get, you're healed, now on your way. 
Now, for Jesus to ignore that, it's jarring. It's almost heartless and cold. So what are we to make of what Jesus does here? Is he heartless and cold? Well, no, I don't think so. I don't think so because what I think is happening is here is that, is that Jesus looks at this crippled man, he sees in him a need that is even greater than his need to walk again, a need, a need that is even greater than his health. He looks at the crippled man and he sees in him his need to have his sins forgiven. Jesus sees that as his greatest need and so that's what he does for him. He forgives his sins. What are sins? What are sins? Well, the Bible tells us that sins are those actions and those thoughts and, that are, and those attitudes that people have that show them to be rebels towards God. Those actions and thoughts and attitudes that are not in line with God's will for people. So, for example, Jesus once summed up God's will for all people in this way. He said... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. So then, anyone who has ever ignored God, or ever used God's name in vain, or ever disobeyed one of the 600-odd laws of the Old Testament, assuming they even know what they are, then that person has rebelled against the first part of God's will for them, to love God with everything they've got. If anyone has ever lied to another person, or cheated or hated or sworn at another person, or failed to help someone in need, then that person has rebelled against the second part of God's will for them, to love one's neighbour. These are the people that are rebels, these are the people that are sinners. Here's a little fact for you. I wonder if you knew this. Did you know that the Bible tells us that every person that has ever lived, every single person, except for Jesus, has rebelled against God's will? It's true. Every single person. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, I think we know that that, that to be true of ourselves... We don't live according to God's will. Fact is, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. And that's a mighty big problem. Because the Bible also tells us that a day is coming when God will judge all people. That all of us who are found to be rebels will face God's punishment. Will be put in hell forever. It's an awful thought. Life as a crippled man 2,000 years ago, that was woeful. You know, this man, his condition, it is wretched. But to spend your life lying around in your own filth, suffering the pain of ulcerating bed sores, begging just to survive, well, it doesn't even begin to compare to an eternity in hell. Jesus knew that. And that's why he took care of this man's greatest need. He forgave his sins, wiped the slate clean, the record of rebellion ripped up and torn away and tossed away, friendship with God restored, 
the promise of an eternity, not in hell, but with God in heaven forever. Was this a cold, heartless act on the part of Jesus? No way. In fact, it was the kindest thing he possibly could have done. But you know, not everyone there that day was exactly impressed with what Jesus said to the crippled man. We're told that present in the crowd that day were teachers of the law. They're like the religious leaders of the day. And when they hear Jesus forgive the crippled man, they are absolutely flabbergasted. They're outraged. How dare Jesus forgive people's sins? No one is able to forgive sins but God himself, they say. And so they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Read with me verse 6. Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You've got to hand it to the teachers of the law, don't you? They've kind of got a point. You know, if sins are those things that we do in rebellion to God, then surely it, it can only be God who forgives us. Surely only he is able to do it. You know, imagine for a moment um, that Jeff and I have a fight and it's my fault. We're very good friends, okay, let me just say that. But imagine that we have a fight. Imagine, I don't know, I tell Jeff that his taste in music, terrible, terrible, okay. Bob Dylan stinks. Okay, there you go. We have a falling out. Jeff and I, he's, he's no longer my friend. He doesn't like me. Then imagine, imagine if Edwin comes up to me and he says, oh, Warren, I heard what terrible things you said about Jeff and his taste in music. And uh, look, don't worry about it anymore. I forgive you. I forgive you. Now you can go and be his friend again. Can you see how there's something wrong with that? It's almost insulting towards Jeff that Edwin would do that. He's got no right to do that. He's not been authorised to do that. It's presumptuous. And that's the point that the teachers of the law are making. It's presumptuous, offensive, blasphemous of Jesus to think that he can forgive sins. Now, Jesus knows what they're thinking. He picks up on it. And so he responds to the teachers of the law by asking them a question. This is the question he asks. He says, okay, fellas, I want you to consider these two things. I want you to tell me which one is harder to say. Is it harder for me to say to the, uh, to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven? Or is it harder for me to say to the paralytic man, get up and walk? Now, of course, the answer to the question is, it's much harder to say, get up and walk. It's very easy to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because that's unprovable. It's, it's untestable. Anybody can say it. But we can never really be sure if someone's sins have been forgiven. But to say to someone, get up and walk, well, to say that to a crippled man and if he was to continue to lie there on the floor, well, you just end up looking like a goose. So Jesus says to the teachers of the law, okay, fellows, in order to prove to you that I have been given authority from God to forgive sins, I'm now going to say the harder one. And he turns to the paralytic man and he says, get up and walk. Read with me from verse 8. Verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this 
was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man, and that's just Jesus' way of referring to himself, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. You know what? It's right there, right then, right at that moment, right at that point, that Jesus' credibility is put on the line for everyone to see. Does he really have a power from God to do the impossible? Does he really have an authority from God to forgive people's sins? Well, yes, he does, because right in front of them all, the crippled man gets up, he picks up his mat, and he walks right on out of there. And as you can imagine, everyone who sees it, absolutely floored. Verse 12, verse 12. He got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus comes off as no goose. The people recognise that this man has got an authority that comes from God himself, an authority to make crippled men walk and more significantly an authority to forgive the sins of people. What was this crippled man's greatest need? Well, it was to have his sins forgiven. And Jesus was able to forgive his sins. Able because God had authorised him to do so. What happened next for the crippled man? Where did he go? What did he get up to? Actually, we don't know. That's the last we hear of him. Because in the story, we're, we're then taken away from the house. The next thing we know, Jesus is out and he's walking beside Lake Galilee. He comes across a bloke named Levi. Now, Levi, we're told, is a tax collector. He's doing what tax collectors do. He's sitting at his booth collecting taxes. Jesus comes up to him and he says, Hey, Levi, come and follow me. At which Levi gets up and he begins to follow him. Read with me from verse 13. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. Now, at first, what might strike strike you as strange in this scene is the way that Levi just gets up and walks away from his job like that. There might be some people here this morning that would like to do that, get up and walk away from their job. But it's kind of dramatic what we see here, isn't it? But there is something that's even more striking about this particular scene, something that our modern minds might miss. Because you see, Levi was a tax collector. Most people these days don't like the tax man, but in Jesus' Jesus' day, we need to realise that tax collectors, they were despised. They were considered traitors. What they would do is they would take people's hard-earned money and then they would give it away to a foreign government. They would give it away to the Romans. And to top it off, tax collectors, they wouldn't just give people's money away to the Romans. A lot of it, they would actually pocket for themselves. They would steal it. So when a Jew like Levi became a tax collector, they were regarded as outcasts from society. 
They were disqualified from being witnesses in court. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. They brought disgrace on their family. Tax collectors were considered to be amongst the worst of sinners. And so what is really striking here is the fact that Jesus would go over to this man and call him to follow him. And if that's striking, then wait till you see what happens next. Because the next thing we read, Jesus is back at Levi's house and he's having a party with him. With him and with all of his other sinner mates. Now, of course, we're all sinners. We've already thought about that. But these people, they were renowned sinners. Like Levi, these are the outcasts of society, the misfits, the social scum. And Jesus is right there partying with them. No wonder when the teachers of the law see Jesus at Levi's place, they're flabbergasted all over again. I mean, here's the man who claims to be God's representative. What's he doing? He's partying with sinners, with rebels against God. Here's the man who claims to have an authority with God. Partying with sinners, it shouldn't be, it's outrageous. So these teachers of the law ask Jesus' disciples, what's going on here? Read with me from verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But you know what? It's not the disciples who who answer these teachers of the law. Because again, Jesus knows what they're thinking and so it's he that answers. And he answers them by way of a saying or, or a proverb. He says, only sick people need a doctor, not healthy people. And just like a doctor is on about helping sick people, well, Jesus is on about helping sinners. That pretty much sums up his whole mission. Jesus has not come to call righteous people. He's not come to call innocent people, as though those people even existed. He's come to call sinners. Read with me verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, I don't know if you know anybody that's ever become a doctor, but they spend years and years and years at university. Their parents spend lots of money, put lots of money into their education. It's hard work, all those examinations. It's difficult to become a doctor. It would be a complete waste of of, of time, therefore, for a doctor to only ever have healthy patients. In the same way, it would be a complete waste of time for the one who has been authorised to forgive sins to hang around non-sinners. Jesus came to call sinners. Jesus wants sinners. Jesus wants people who have offended God. Jesus wants rebels. Jesus wants people who are deserving of hell. And he wants them because he is willing to forgive their sins. Jesus is able to forgive sins. And more than that, Jesus is willing to forgive sins. 
In fact, friends, if you want to know just how able and just how willing Jesus is to forgive sins, then, friends, look no further than Jesus' death and resurrection. You see, just a few years after Jesus healed the crippled man and ate with Levi and his mates, a few years later, Jesus would die on a cross. Religious leaders like the ones in this story, they came up with false charges and they had Jesus executed as a criminal. The amazing thing is, the amazing thing is that Jesus always knew that that's what was going to happen to him. But rather than running away, he chose for it to happen. Because you see, as Jesus died on the cross, it was much more than just a miscarriage of justice. When Jesus died on the cross, there was something else happening at a whole other level. When Jesus died on the cross, he was there taking the place of rebels, taking the place of sinners. And in a way that I don't even pretend to begin to understand, when Jesus died on the cross, he faced an eternity of hell so that sinners would not have to. You want to know if Jesus is really willing to forgive sinners? Then look no further than the cross. And if you want to know if Jesus is really able to forgive sinners, then look no further than his resurrection. Three days after Jesus' death, God raised him back to life, never to die again. Confirmation from God himself that Jesus had truly done what he had set out to do. Yes, Jesus is willing to forgive sins. And yes, Jesus is able to forgive sins. Friends, do you know what I think is just so sad? I find it just so sad to think that many people these days don't even know what their greatest need is. For them, their greatest need is having the baby or getting some sleep, or family, or friends, or money, or job, or education. For some, it's even their health. That's what their greatest need is in their minds. I think it's just so sad that so many people fail to recognise that all of these things pale in significance with the need to have sins forgiven. So many people unaware of their own truly wretched condition. Unaware that an eternity of hell awaits them. And that is a tragedy. What makes it an even greater tragedy is the fact that their greatest need can be met. Friends, Jesus is willing and able to forgive sins, to wipe the slate clean to rip up the record of rebellion, to restore friendship with God, to swap hell for heaven. He's willing and he's able. Friends, I stand here before you this morning as nothing more than a rebel who has had his sins forgiven. Tim and Lucy stood up here this morning as nothing more than rebels who have had their sins forgiven. Jesus wants to have your sins forgiven too. 
If you haven't already asked Jesus to forgive your sins, then why not? I mean, why not? Why not do it right now? You know he's willing. You know he's able. So why don't you join me as we pray together now and together ask God to meet your greatest need once and for all. Let's come before God now and pray. Our Father, we know that if our greatest need um, was to have a baby, then, then you would have sent us an obstetrician. If it was money, then you would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need was education or knowledge, then you would have sent us a professor. If it was a good job, you would have sent us a careers advisor. If our greatest need was our health, you would have sent us a surgeon. But Father, you knew that our greatest need was the forgiveness of our sins and so you sent us a saviour, Jesus. Dear God, thank you that Jesus died on the cross to take our punishment making forgiveness possible. Lord God, we now ask that our sins would indeed be forgiven through what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that he is willing and he is able to forgive even rebels like us. Amen.